0: Good morning, thank you for being here. It's good to see you, grateful for your presence. My name is John, we're making our way through Mark's Gospel, but we're going to hear from Mark's Gospel uh, this morning for the last time for a bit. We'll return uh, after the season of Advent. Would you please pray with me? Our Father, would you be with us as we read your word and as we listen to your word? And would you be with me as a preacher of your word and not my own? Would you use my lips for your holy purposes? Thank you for making yourself known in holy scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Mark's gospel. We're in Mark chapter 14. and We'll begin at verse 12. Go all the way to 31 this morning. Mark 14, verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is the word of our Lord. Little theologians, I want you to draw a picture from a scene that you know very well, but I'm going to tell this story anyhow. It's the story of the Passover. And I'd like for you to draw a picture for me of uh, two posts and a lintel. You know the, what the lintel is, it's that beam across. And I want you to draw blood on those two posts and on that lintel. What a horrible thing for your pastor to ask you to do. Draw blood. You remember the story, don't you? You remember why blood was on the posts and on that beam that goes across the top of the posts. Draw that for me, if you would, please. But for all of us, it, it actually serves a very practical point for us to think about the Passover. Do you do you remember that very first Passover, the one that happened in the Ministry of Moses? The Hebrew people had flourished in Egypt for 430 years. They uh, lived together on the northern coast as a distinct people surrounded by an ethnically different people, people called Egyptians. And during this time, you, you remember, don't you, the Hebrew people, they actually swelled in population. The population growth was a good sign for the Hebrew family. It meant that God, he's keeping his promises. He's making the people to be as numerous is the stars of the sky." That was the promise to Abraham and he's keeping that promise. But this uh, growth was bad for the Egyptians, wasn't it? Don't you remember that? For the Egyptians, this ethnically different people in their midst, foreigners, those with no established history in the region, those with entirely different habits. And traditions, those with a different God, and in fact, those with just one God, those people are growing, and that was actually unsettling. This is the fear and trepidation regarding refugees. Do You remember what Egypt did? Joseph, by the way, he was long dead. More than 300 years ago, Joseph had died. The political powers of Egypt did what many nations have done. They make the foreigners in their midst the lowest of the low. The Hebrew people were enslaved and mistreated. Their life expectancy was pushed down because of hard labor. But there was also an, uh, an order that the Egyptians made that their babies would be killed. The Egyptians wanted to use the Hebrew people to get some infrastructure projects done, some fields harvested, but after all of that, they would ultimately cease to be a people at all. Slowly, they would be disintegrated. You remember this story, don't you? And do you remember that there was no hope for the Hebrew people, that uh, no uprising would help them, no hero arrived, not even Moses and Aaron could help them. Because the king, Pharaoh, would not relent. And you remember that the Hebrew people, they cried out to God. And you remember what God did, but do you remember the details of what God did? God certainly heard their cry. But Exodus chapter 12 tells us a little bit more than simply that. God reinvents time for the Hebrew people. He says, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. Do you hear that newness? It shall be the first month of the year for you. Wouldn't you love a restart? Everything just gets restarted. All the bad is behind you. This is what rebooting is. Do people reboot anymore? God, he would remember that covenant that he made, and he would save them. And do you remember how God did this? This is usually what we do remember. God told the people to take a lamb according to their household, a male lamb without blemish, one year old. And God started this new month on the 10th day of the month. He says to them, you will take a lamb and you'll keep that lamb with you for a bit. Doesn't that make a lot of sense? This will be your first month and then think about that for nine days because on the tenth day you're going to select a lamb that makes no sense at all keep this lamb for four days that doesn't make sense either live with this lamb have this lamb in your midst but after four days on the fourteenth day of the brand new month at sundown kill the lamb live with it for four days let your kids get to know it and then kill it. And everyone did this. A massive population of people, all living in the same region, all hated by the host of that country. All of them, they killed their lamb with synchronized precision. Can you imagine that? All of them, at sundown. Imagine the bleating sound of those lambs. Just before eating the lamb, God tells them, place some of the blood on the frame of your doorway. Does that make sense to anyone at all? Take some of that blood, and before you eat the lamb, put that on the frames of your doorway. Roast the lamb, eat the lamb, the entire lamb, and eat the lamb as a family, and do it very, very quickly. Keep your belt on, your sandals on, your staff in your hand. Don't get comfortable Does any of this make sense to us? This is God reinventing a month for them that would be for them the first month. That night, the firstborn of Egypt died. God killed each one, from the king's firstborn to any firstborn, even the firstborn who were in prison, even the firstborn of the livestock In fact, Exodus 12 tells us that not a single house in Egypt was unaffected by God. The Hebrew people from their region in the north of the country had cried out to God for deliverance, but now Egypt cries out in horror. It's very important for this passage for me to retell you that story. You see, you and I would not rescue a people this way, would we? Were we to see a people in this kind of need, we would not rescue the Hebrew people the way God has. We would send in the Marines, or Jason Bourne, or bombs. God works in unexpected ways. and We can always count on God to work with complete and total independence. His ways are not like our ways. And so, too, he never needs our help. The Hebrew people will be rescued through the death of something precious to God, an animal. He is the only creator. He created the lamb. A perfect lamb was not something the Hebrew people could make. They could only recognize it. And God, he made that animal, including the lifeblood of that animal. And that lifeblood was what God uses to save his own firstborn son, the Hebrew people. At the meal that you just read about in Mark's gospel... Jesus knows that he is that atoning sacrifice. He is that lifeblood for his disciples. In verse 24, he says, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Jesus, he knows the way God rescues his people. The way that God rescues people is surprising and unexpected to us, but he, he knows And not only this, Jesus knows that just as it was in the brand new month from Exodus 12, God's way of salvation, it's going to be neglected by God's disciples. The 12 will ignore God's way of salvation. The 12 will deny God's way of salvation, just like Exodus. What did the people do when they were rescued by God? They go into the wilderness and they forgot Those who knew better betrayed God." This really is the risk of a disciple, and Mark, as he is uh, uh, giving this letter to Christians in the city of Rome, Mark, he expects those Christians in Rome to remember how unexpectedly God works, and that's what I want to talk about this morning, how unexpectedly God works. But Mark also wants the recipients of his letter, Christians in the city of Rome, he wants them to know not only how unexpectedly God works, but he wants them to know how prone every Christian is to betray this God. This passage is a reminder of the surprising way God saves, and a warning not to forget the surprising way God saves So, that's just an introduction, and I know that's a very long introduction, but I want us to notice three developments as we make our way through this passage, and the first is in verses 12 through 16. I want us to notice this unexpected preparation. This is going to be the final meal with his disciples before his death on the cross. Jesus, he's going to be arrested later this very evening. This afternoon would be the time in which uh, everyone in Jerusalem would be uh, busily preparing for the meal. Uh, This is Thursday. The meal will happen in individual houses right after sunset. Friday begins at sunset. Did you know that? So Jesus will be crucified on Friday, but this lamb would be sacrificed this Thursday afternoon as a part of the preparations. The evening meal would actually begin the week-long feast of of unleavened bread. And so you hear the uncertainty of the disciples in verse 12. Look at verse 12, would you? Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? The meal normally took place in the city of Jerusalem, but they're not actually from the city of Jerusalem, are they? And it reminds us of Jesus' instructions during during the entry into Jerusalem. Do you remember that when Jesus entered the city? He had his disciples go into the city in advance of him and to fetch a colt from a stranger. And the disciples surely would have remembered that. That was only four days ago. And they would also remember that Jesus had, has uh, given them instructions before. Way back in Mark chapter 6, you remember that Jesus gave them special instructions for when they're to go into the village and share the gospel. Do you remember that? Mark 6, take no bread, no bag, no money. These, these occasions when Jesus is offering instructions, it ought to be a reminder to the disciples that they're utterly helpless. Already he is preparing them to trust God's unexpected ways. These disciples, look what he says to them. He commands them. He says, go into the city. Verse 13, when you see a man, follow him all the way to his house. How specific these instructions are. Find the master of that house. And in verse 14, say to him, speak directly to the master of that house. And in verse 15, Jesus tells them to prepare, presumably uh, prepare the meal since the room itself is already finished, ready. There's so many commands here, but notice that God has already made the plans effective. The people, as the disciples walk into the city, the people are right where they need to be. This man who is carrying water, he's right where he needs to be. The intentions of the master of the house, those intentions are already right where they need to be. God, He's working. And the disciples, what are they doing? They're simply walking through the afternoon, obeying Jesus, witnessing God's own plan unfold before their very eyes. I want us to understand that this is actually a wonderful picture of the Christian life. These ignorant disciples walking into the city of Jerusalem, they have just a few details, but all of those details prove to be true before their very eyes. It happens exactly as Jesus said it would happen. Do you know that that's Christian life? We trust that God has ordained everything that comes to pass, it's His will, and He knows what He's doing, Christian. Notice that when the disciples do speak, they actually, even then, are not speaking with their own authority. Look in verse 14. The teacher says, these disciples, what are they doing? They're obeying. They're trusting. They're counting on the authority of Jesus. Doesn't this feel an awful lot like Exodus chapter 12? How strange those events were. But the Hebrew people were to obey and to trust to defer their will to the will of their good God. Look at how reassured the disciples are in verse 16. I think that when we read verse 16, we ought to have an exclamation point there someplace. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them. Well, there's no exclamation point in the Greek language, but there should be one right there in verse 16. Isn't it so good of God to remain independent from us, to do what he wants, not what we want, to work in his own ways, not our ways, to assert his authority over our authority? And look how he orchestrates such minuscule details on this Thursday afternoon. One man carrying one jar of water. In ordained meeting, the disciples seem to run right into him. And then he walks straight to his own house, and then there's a willing homeowner who is awaiting, and there is a large room ready to go. Such common details. Would anyone suspect that this is the maker of the cosmos saving his people? The common details, they're put to use by a good creator God for his followers, Who are called to trust Him. And before we leave this uh, vignette, I want us to remember that the Christian life may feel very, very boring. We may feel like people around us are spiritually more together. Elders, deacons, leaders in the church, missionaries, uh, all of them, they have so much more together than we do. What we have instead is very common. We feel like our lives are boring and simple, unadventurous in every way, no great skills that get me leadership responsibilities, nobody covets what I have, nobody wants the life that I live. My life is boring, and we really do feel that a lot of the time. I think this is what's behind celebrity culture. We love celebrities because they have the kind of life I wish I had, but mine is the exact opposite. But God has orchestrated all of the details of your life. He cares about everything, and He has equipped you for everything that will come. Nothing that you touch as a Christian person is common. You're called to go into the world with obedience and trust and contentedness, speaking the words of the teacher, leaving the results to Him. Do you see that in the first vignette of this passage, how common all of this is? But it is the hand of God at work. And then a meal seems to break out, doesn't it, in verse 17. Do you think that the disciples found all of this uh, encouraging? They surely would have found it encouraging. Everything happened just as he told us. But we're going to see that encouragement change. But in verses 17 through 25, we have this meal. And it looks as though there may be a two meals or maybe a meal within a meal. Uh, we do this with multiple, multi, multiple course uh, meals, don't we? We have appetizers and a salad and a main course and a dessert. And if it's a birthday, that dessert is accompanied by an additional ceremony of candle blowing uh, and then eating the cake together. But notice that there seems to be a meal that begins in verse 17. And uh, I'm sorry, verse 18. They were reclining at table. And then in verse 22, we see a similar phrase. They were eating. And it's almost as if Jesus uh, institutes one meal within another meal. Some scholars maintain that a meal within a meal is a helpful way to understand what's happening here. There's this ordinary meal, and then there's a ceremonial meal that commemorates the Passover. And it may be the dividing point here um, that we find when Judas, who actually uh, is discovered, is found out. Jesus calls him out. He is the one, in verse 20, who is dipping bread into the dish with Jesus. And it may be that Judas goes out after that ordinary meal and before the ceremonial meal. I think about that for a moment. I want us to notice the simplicity of the meal nonetheless. Mark shares with us so few details. As a minister who wants to unpack everything that is happening during this meal, it's very frustrating that Mark provides so few details. And listen to this. At an ordinary Passover meal during this time, there would be a very long four-part meal, and each part would end with a cup of wine. Could be that's what's happening here. And then there would be several blessings that are pronounced by the head of the family. A child would uh, ask a question. Again, it's a screenplay. A child would ask a question, and then the father would answer the question recounting the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 26, and the father would pronounce a blessing over the various foods that were on the table, uh, reminding one of the oppression that they experienced in Egypt. And then around midnight, there would be the drinking of the fourth and final cup, and then they would sing probably Psalm 116, 117, or 118. But Mark gives us virtually none of those details, does he? It's such a simple meal. It's an abridged meal, really, as Mark shares it. None of the normal complexities are there. We might argue that they are there, that Jesus celebrates a standard Passover meal with his disciples, but Mark, by the Holy Spirit, doesn't tell us that. He just gives us these scant details. But the details he provides are very important. The meal recounts the gospel this is what Mark is telling us about this meal. None of the normal complexities are there. Mark, he just tells us the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. And it's so simple. And maybe, maybe you miss it. I want to explain it. But you know that the gospel is simple, don't you? How many of us in this room profess faith in Jesus Christ yet are terrified to share the gospel with others? It does frighten us. The elders of our church just read a book about evangelism called Honest Evangelism by uh, Rico Tice, and he says this in the book. It can be so terrifying to tell others about Jesus, and do you know what makes it worse? What makes it worse is if the person that you want to tell about Jesus is extremely intelligent or extremely antagonistic, and then it's even harder. You admit that, right? Right? Why is the gospel so hard to share with those who are extremely intelligent or those who are highly antagonistic? Part of the reason it's hard is because the gospel is so short or so simple. There's no way it can be that simple. What do we think we uh, would say to someone who is an Oxford PhD about Jesus? The gospel is just too simple. I don't have enough information. What about someone who is highly antagonistic? I don't have enough defenses built up around that gospel. Isn't the real problem with sharing the gospel, the fact that the gospel is actually really, really simple? It is simple, but it's majestically simple. This entire Passover that Jesus celebrates with his disciples is a telling of the story of the gospel. He takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, This is my body. Notice, by the way, at this meal how few words Jesus offers. This is my body. And then what do they do? It's bread. They tear it apart and they eat it. It's bread. And then he takes the blood red wine and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And then what do they do? They all drink it. And that's the gospel. He tells the story of the Passover with uh, the consumption of his dead body. The Egyptians didn't show mercy on God's people. God's people didn't save themselves. God did it. Unexpectedly, in his own way. Jesus, Jesus is that way. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is simple. He must die, his body must be broken, and his blood must be poured out in order for you to be rescued. Go back to verse 16. Do you see where it says, And they prepared the Passover? What do you think that that means? Verse 16, and they prepared the Passover. What do you think that that means? Did disciples actually prepare a lamb that had been slain that afternoon? Look at verse 12. It seems that that's exactly the case. That they gathered a lamb that had been sacrificed, or maybe they themselves sacrificed it. Is there a lamb on this table at this meal? Have you ever thought about that? Is there a lamb on the table at this meal. I think that, uh, according to uh, Scripture, it makes the most sense to assume that there is a lamb on the table. But do you wonder why Mark never mentions the lamb? Wouldn't that be a perfect object lesson for Jesus, I am the lamb? But he doesn't do that. He uses the bread and he uses the cup. The gospel is so simple, so straightforward. Jesus actually uses the ingredients of remembrance, which are the ingredients that they would, well, they would have each and every day. And that's the problem with the gospel. It's simple. His body was broken and his blood was poured out. That is your only nourishment in this life and in the life to come. This death was necessary for your salvation. This morning, do you believe that that death was for you? There's something else that Mark does in this passage, and this is where we want to finish, and I have three uh, three applications. But notice what happens in verses 26 through 31. Mark, he expects the Christians in Rome to remember how unexpectedly God works, but he also expects Christians in Rome to remember how prone they are to betray him. Traditionally, after the meal, they'd sing a selection of psalms that would include Psalm 118, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The evening before was a meal in Bethany when they're reclining at table, and a woman displays great praise of Jesus by pouring perfume over Him. And now it's late, after midnight. And they're singing a hymn of praise together. There was a memorable preparation for the meal that afternoon. God put all of those circumstances in place. And then there was a meal in which Jesus preaches the gospel to them, showing them that his body and the breaking and the pouring out of that blood is the very center of the gospel. And now they finish with the singing of a hymn as they leave and enter into the beautiful night air. But he finds it interesting that walking in tandem with the purpose of God to save us through grace alone is the failure of his followers. Failure is everywhere in these passages. Verses 17 through 18, and when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Most of them are thinking, how in the world can this be possible? We've seen so much. Jesus has done so much, even just this afternoon. If there was any encouragement for the unexpected way in which the evening was prepared, the encouragement turns to what? It turns to sorrow. How can it be that someone would betray him? You don't have to have been a Christian for very long to know what this feels like. Brothers and sisters, we know of highly respected Christian people who have failed miserably through scandalous sin. Some of them have even walked away from the faith boastingly. Do you know people like this? Even our closest Christian friends, they can, they can do what? They can let us down. We witness this in small ways, and sometimes we witness this in large ways. Judas, he's the one who's referred to in verses 17 through 18, and he turns away for good, never to return. And wouldn't it be wonderful if the betrayal ended just there? That's Judas. No one's like Judas. But look at verse 27. See what happens right after they sing the hymn. Jesus says, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's quoting Zechariah 13. Now, don't believe for a moment that the word for fall away necessarily means to rebel against the faith, to leave the faith permanently. It's not apostasy, but it's a kind of lapse, a momentary turning away. Jesus is taking his disciples back to chapter 13, where he warns them to be on guard, to not be led astray by false Christs. But the falling away, that's really a part of who we are as Christians, that quote from Zechariah 13, it's about God restoring and caring for the kinds of people who scatter. But those kinds of people who scatter, that's you and it's me. Christians are the kind of people who in this life are likely to fall away. Their love for God is not always thick. And when they scatter, Zechariah says that God will still say to them, they are my people. God, he, he expects us He expects us to struggle to live a Christian life. He expects us to struggle to be full of affection to Jesus. And I wonder if you're embarrassed by this. It is embarrassing. There will be a time when this is not the case for the Christian, when we're with Jesus face to face and we'll no longer be riddled with doubt and tempted to turn. But isn't it reassuring to be told who you are? The Bible tells you, Christian, who you are. You're the kind of person who struggles to be near to Jesus, to hold on to Him. And I'm the kind of Christian who struggles to be near to Jesus and to hold on to Him. You and I both struggle in the plan of God to save us through the death of Jesus. But God knows that we struggle. According to Zechariah, all of our fleeting love for God will not erase us from his care. God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And you and your struggles, even if you're feeling that struggle poignantly right now, your God will never leave or forsake you. Even in your doubt, even in your distrust, even in your anger, You know, it's Peter, isn't it, in our passage that says, I will not deny you. Now, we know better, don't we? Because we know how the story goes. I will not deny you, says Peter. But Jesus is the only one without denial. He will never deny you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. And he's not this way because you are so faithful and so loving and so devoted No, he's this way because he keeps his promises. He is this way because he is faithful to the Holy Father. Right next to the wonderful grace of God in Jesus is the fickle love of a Christian. Why do you think this is? Well, Mark, he expects Christians in Rome to remember how unexpectedly and surprisingly God works. But he also wants them to know how prone they are to betray him. This may be a little bit too much honesty for us in this passage, but there are some applications here, and I want to to conclude with three applications. If we really are like this as Christians, if we are prone to betray, prone to fall away, when things get really hard, we are prone to dash. There's three applications. What am I to do? The first one is this, remember the lamb. In the center of our passage, what are they doing? When this meal is shared in Luke chapter 22 and 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. His body had to be broken for your salvation, and his blood had to be poured out. Everything about your life, Christian, has to do with that blood on the post and the lintel of your heart. In verse 25, it's clear that we will one day drink with Jesus again in the kingdom of God, but for now... Our task is to remember that we have life because of that blood. His death was necessary. And that's the first application. Remember the lamb. But the second application is lower your expectations. Doesn't that sound absolutely terrible? Don't think too highly about your own faithfulness. And Peter, what a wonderful example of this he is. All of us would do well to risk our lives for the sake of the gospel. And this is what Peter does. Risks his life for the sake of the gospel. But the man who did this is also the man who betrayed Jesus. And do you notice how boastful Peter argues with Jesus? They will fall away, but I never will. And Jesus, what does he do? He admonishes Peter for his boastfulness. But really, all of the disciples are speaking just like Peter. We want to boast about our goodness before God. And we need to lower our expectations. We need to understand something about ourselves. When life gets hard, we feel that temptation to doubt, even to leave Jesus. We've already been told in Mark chapter 13 that there will be persecution. If there's persecution, I'm surely not going to be the most ardent martyr before my good King Jesus. I'm gonna be probably one of the lower ones, lower your expectations of your own faithfulness. And this conclusion or this application I think is so important. Everything in this passage takes place when the disciples are together. Isn't it better to hear bad news when you're with a brother and a sister? Live with others. That's the last application. Remember the lamb, lower your expectations and live with others. Do you see how the disciples, they're all together. Together they follow his instructions. Together they prepare for the Passover. Together they sit with him at the table. Together they depart and sing. Together they receive hard words from Jesus. All of this together. Do you think that they all need to remember the lamb? They're all together helping one another remember. Do you think that they all need to lower their expectations there together apologizing to one another and confessing their sins to one another? All of it's done together. Well, Mark wants the Christians in Rome, and he wants us to remember how unexpectedly and surprisingly God works, but he also wants us to remember how prone we are to betray him. Remember the lamb. Lower your expectations live with others. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you for speaking to us. Would you, would you make yourself known to us powerfully over the course of this week? As you discipline us, would you do so with great tenderness, and would you cause us to grow in grace for the glory of Jesus? Amen.